So first off, I want to say thank you for everybody for taking the time to attend. I know everybody is exhausted and afraid, and, and there's all kinds of anxiety over what's going on on how we fight this virus and, and the, the countries closing down to fight this virus. And I know that a lot of providers and practice managers uh, are in the middle of you know, unthinkable circumstances, not only with treating the disease, but how to keep practices and, and facilities operating. So my main point for anybody that has never met me or doesn't know me is that I am in this fight with you. You know, I wrestled for 18 years, and so this just charges my adrenaline, and I'm in it with you. And as we approach this presentation today, I want you to know a couple key things as we run through. There's way more information evolving every day regarding reimbursement than can be contained in one hour. And I know most all of you have been reading the changes ravenously and, and trying to make sense of them. So my primary goals for this presentation are one, to give you an overview of some of the fundamental dynamic changes, two, to help you see some of the pitfalls, to know how to examine the information for conflicting issues, for legal issues, and to understand how those conflicts between payer regulations or ambiguities in the changes can be resolved and where you find those answers. I'm gonna provide you a great amount of resources in this handout so that you can go do research and try to find answers on your own. I am available as a resource, please reach out. Also, uh, the final thing I'm gonna do is, is I'm going to give everybody uh, some implementation advice from having uh, been way down in the bowels of healthcare for a long time now with reimbursement and, and having a lot of experience with how reimbursement struggles and conflicts arise. I'm gonna give you some real tools that you can walk away with and hopefully implement as we all look at telehealth, not only to fight COVID, but also to help keep our practices and our facilities afloat financially. So it is important to understand uh, that we are talking about a current state of law in this presentation. And when I say current state of law, I mean is that I cannot capture all of the evolving changes as of today. Uh, I've been working some crazy hours just to keep up. And uh, what I've tried to do is provide the most relevant, most important regulatory changes as of today's date. Um, it is also important to understand that this is not an exhaustive or conclusive list. I know we have listeners from all over the country on here. And what I've done is I've taken uh, a couple different examples and tried to compare and contrast them both for CMS, for Medicaid, and then some of the major payers so that you can do that analysis with whatever payers you, you're working with. Also very important, uh, is that you understand that this presentation is legal information, not legal advice, all right? And, and I wanna walk through some of these because I've had more communication from, from providers and practices seeking answers in the last two weeks than ever before, and that's good, but I want you to understand my ethical limitations too. Um, so first of all, legal information is, is, can be gathered by attorneys and non-attorneys, and it is just gathering and providing access to information. And many of you are reading this information, just not identifying it as legal, all right? That this is something that a lot of different resource groups will provide out there. Now, the, the next level is kind of best practices advice. Um, e even any type of best practice from that legal information is advice. It does raise ethical duties. and depending on how specific the question, it could raise the necessity for an attorney-client relationship, um, which pulls us down to kind of the third level. This is your true legal advice position, all right? That is interpretation, counsel, or advice based on the law and a specific client circumstances. So 
one provider has got these set of facts, wants to know how to interpret those facts versus the law, that is attorney uh, attorney advice, that's legal advice, and that raises all the ethical duties and requires engagement. All right, let's jump into it because we're going to cover a lot of ground very quickly. So first, uh, three, main, three main points to our overview. Uh, we're going to learn the major changes to telehealth that CMS implemented to fight COVID-19. The key here is to understand that telehealth delivery changes do not change the underlying coverage regulation for medical necessity. All right. Uh, I'm going to put a number of restrictive disclaimers out as we are going through. And, and you under, must understand that these broad policy statements that are being published right now don't change the underlying regulation of those services unless it is there in black and white and specifically identified. Second major point is that we're going to learn major changes uh, to private payers. And the keynote there is that most private payer changes are still more restrictive than CMS and Medicaid. Uh, a lot of the private payers, they have a very big broad spectrum. Some of them are just funneling everyone, everyone through their current structure for telehealth reimbursement. Some have loosened up a little bit. Some have loosened up a great deal. Um, and I'll give you just some examples to go through and how to analyze those uh, as we move through this presentation. Third major point, learn the essentials of implementing COVID-19 telehealth changes. Uh, the key there, these are temporary and they are complex, all right? So for all of my revenue cycle compliance individuals out there, we're going to talk about payer matrices and coverage positions and how to do analysis uh, to put together a new framework. This is a whole new reimbursement framework around these services. Okay, so we're going to talk about the biggest shifts first, all right? So CMS on 317 had a news release that they will temporarily pay a broad range of telehealth services under the 1135 waiver, which is underneath the National Emergencies Act. Uh, that release says, and providers, nurse practitioners, clinical psychologists, licensed clinical social workers. I'm going to repeat myself a number of times to try to emphasize these points, but note the news release conflicts with the fact sheet, and the fact sheet will be a little broader. We'll talk about that, but you've got to keep the underlying coverage positions, your LCDs and NCDs behind it. Next major element in the news release, without regard to diagnosis. Yes, that means telehealth doesn't, I mean, what they have expanded does not have to be just COVID related for a Medicare beneficiary. And I'll keep being very precise with my words to squeeze in those nuanced differences between the payers. They also broaden the means of communication with audio and video. We'll get into some of the applications of that and which mediums are appropriate or not appropriate. And we're going to talk about some of the gray area that's still left there. All right, CMS's news release is that for dates of service 3-6-2020 forward, they're going to be doing the physician fee schedule at the same as in-person services. Now, that seems pretty simple, except that you need to make sure that is unless there's a telehealth code. If there's a telehealth code, you use that first, all right? That's your default. The other major piece to this is that coinsurance and deductibles still apply. I'm probably emphasizing that in reverse from what most people have heard, uh, but we'll talk about the OIG opinion. Yes, they have relaxed the regulations, but it is not a waived free-for-all for, you know, anybody can have any inducement out there. And we'll talk about that. Important to note, states are still in charge of Medicaid, all right? Each independent state has released some, uh, relaxed some regulation a little more or a little less 
for telehealth during this period, and they're each distinct. All right, the fact sheet that came out on 317. Under 1135, CMS will pay for office, and I'm quoting here because this is part of our confusion, right? Uh, office, hospital, or other visits via telehealth within three main buckets, telehealth visits, virtual check-ins, and e-visits. And let's go through some of the, the buckets on these. Even though they're very familiar, uh, I want to highlight some, some details. So number one, Medicare telehealth visits. These are all components that make these services reimbursable. It's an interactive audio and video telecommunications that permits real-time communications. This bucket requires those elements. Uh, permissible providers, note, subject to state law. So you, you have to have the appropriate state law overlay that these providers can are authorized to provide these services in order for the reimbursement to be valid with CMS. There's a list of them there, but I also uh, encourage everybody to continue to look at your LCDs and NCDs. You know, this statement in the fact sheet clearly conflicts with the policy statement because it's broader, all right? So my, my general advice is that look at to the underlying coverage positions for these services. If it is not specifically delineated in the fact sheet, then you need to figure out if that is a permissible provider to administer those services. CMS will pay for telehealth visits the same as in-person. Yes, we're talking about in-office E&Ms, all right? Now, other major component that changed, all right, here is the prior relationship with patient. HHS is not going to audit to ensure that you had a prior relationship. This element, this necessary element for proper reimbursement is very different per payer. So make sure you pay attention to that as we move forward. Virtual check-ins, the second bucket. Now, clearly, this is for established patients. I'm quoting the language here, for patients in their home. All right, so for virtual check-ins, established patients in their home. All right, you can provide a brief communications service with practitioners. And I'm going to emphasize practitioners for this service via a synchronous discussion over a telephone or exchange of information through video or image initiated by the patient. All right. Again, we're going to keep that important piece in there. It's this service is initiated by the patient, uh, but practitioners may educate patients on the availability of the service prior to the patient initiation. Educating patients of services is not a virtual check-in. You can't have doctors calling up their old patient roster and billing for that, all right? You need to provide a general notice out to all of your patient base and say these services are available, this is how you can use them. Cannot be related to a medical visit within the previous seven days, does not lead to medical visits within the next 24 hours. Again you know, like supplemental elements in, in lots of reimbursement definitions, that is a post-payment risk because we don't quite know if that virtual check-in is going to have an, a, a clinically recommended next step. So just be aware of that. This fact sheet opened it up to verbal consent being permissible, all right? But I'm going to highlight that everybody needs to check with your malpractice carriers as a number of malpractice carriers that I know and work with are recommending a best practices to get a written consent, whether that is via some, you know, in some document, some electronic document for them to get that written consent and that's a part of the record. Just make sure you check with your carriers. Coinsurance and deductibles still generally apply. Um, and obviously for telephone, we're talking about HixPix G2012 and video and images, HixPix G2010. All right, third major bucket from the 
telehealth and some of the changes, or e-visits, all right? Again, these are established patients only, but it's opened up to any location. You can have a non-face-to-face patient-initiated, patient-initiated visit with a doctor via an online portal. Uh, the patient must initiate and communications must complete within seven days. So if this is you input the information, your provider is going to review, that provider has to review and respond within seven days. And I know we are all battling provider availability right now in this crisis, but please make sure to note this as you're structuring what claims you're billing. Um, you're gonna be billing CPTs 99421 through three and HixPix G2061 through three. Uh, the patient must verbally consent, that's the language of the fact sheet, to virtual check-in services. Coinsurance and deductibles apply to these services, but I want you to see the OIG opinion here in a few slides. Practitioners may educate patients on the availability, but again, it's not an e-visit. All right, we're gonna add our next level here, our HIPAA level, all right, which is HHS in the Office of Civil Rights is going to exercise enforcement discretion and waive, underline, some HIPAA violations. Let's be careful because we're broadening way out to a lot of different mediums that have not passed HIPAA scrutiny for communication uh, of PHI. And so I wanna talk about how how broad or actually how narrow those limitations still are. This is a table from the fact sheet. Uh, it provides uh, kind of a compressed version of a lot of the information. Take some time and look that over. I'm not gonna repeat, but it's a good summary. All right, the FAQ released on this same date um, provides some key answers. All right, location limitations on telehealth are lifted, all right? And, but again, I'm gonna say we go back to the, the fact sheet and, and we had those location distinctions still put in the fact sheet. That is a conflict, you're right, it's a conflict. And so you're gonna, we're gonna have to figure out how to resolve that. The list of CMS services impacted under the emergency telehealth declaration, I provided a link right there. Uh, for anybody in our revenue cycle, cycle arena or somebody looking to implement telehealth, that's your first service or first source for Medicare patients. Please note, all other telehealth service restrictions remain in place. Uh, check your LCDs and NCDs. Another key, qualified providers definition has not changed. It's defined in each service coverage position unless specifically addressed in our 317-2020 changes. The established patient requirement will not be enforced. That is a quote. I should have put quotes around there, but that's what the FAQ said, even though we have the conf conflicting element in the fact sheet. Telehealth billing is limited to professionals, right? That, that's, that's pretty normal. However, facilities that receive service only are able to bill for an originating site facility fee. That's HICS-PICS Q3014. Uh, a couple oddities for some of my national providers, modifiers, there are none unless it's asynchronous in Alaska or Hawaii, telehealth under CHA method two, or diagnosis or treatment of acute stroke, all right? Reminder, after all the Medicare changes we just went through, Medicaid is still under state control. All right, let's talk about the OCR and HIPAA and what their statement was. So this came out on 320, all right, and the Office of Civil Rights, this doesn't, this shouldn't go without saying, but it's a nice clear reminder, HIPAA is not suspended, all right? We have very limited waivers only focused on telehealth. Uh, providers included in the waiver, yes. Health insurance carriers, not, all right? So specifically, they outlined that all carrier responsibilities remain the same, identical, all right? Waiver applies to all Medicare and Medicaid patients, all right? Does not have to be COVID-19 related, uh, but note there is a difference all right, because of the, the state authority of administration of Medicaid, those re, there are still significant 
coverage, right? Payment coverage differences with Medicaid, even though we have a HIPAA shift that applies to Medicaid. Not subject to enforcement for, quote, good faith provision of telehealth during COVID-19 nationwide public health emergency. This does not waive HIPAA outside of telehealth. All the, and, and I know we're all wrestling with completely different workflow scenarios, right? You don't have the normal front desk issue and, and, and the typical protocols in place. You have patients in cars and you don't know who's there. So talk to somebody who specializes in HIPAA and can break down a solid defensible position for you on that. I'm going to highlight some of the bad faith factors. I mean, everybody's been reading in the news about the fraudsters out there. Don't get mixed up with somebody, but don't fall into a simple negligence issue with HIPAA. And let's talk about what those are. Obviously, bad faith is criminal, intentional invasion of privacy. However, further disclosures, violation of state law or ethics, Make sure you know your ethical position for, from your board, from your state, all right? We're use, the guidance is for, to use uh, public-facing media, all right? Use of public-facing media is prohibited. That's like Facebook Live. Forgive the typo there. That's not Facebook Like. It should be Live. Um, Twitch, Slack, those type of things. We, it should be non-public-facing. You know, this is the definition, the dividing line that they've given us here, which is FaceTime, Facebook Messenger, Skype. Although I got to tell you, as, as an attorney who's worked in, in these arenas a lot, that still has a lot of questions. I, I mean, it provides a dramatic increase in access, right? But FaceTime and Facebook Messenger have still, they, they have recording capabilities, they have hacking capabilities. We've got a lot of risk in, in venturing out this far this fast. Obviously, it is certainly important to get patients the care and to keep them safe from COVID-19. All right, let's talk about the, uh, the next level to the federal position, which is the Office of Inspector General, the OIG. The OIG released a uh, policy statement and there, and I'm quoting a large portion because I'm a lawyer and language matters, all right? It says, the policy statement is to notify physicians and other practitioners that they will not be subject to administrative sanctions. For, you know, anybody outside the healthcare legal arena, all right, administrative sanctions are powers underneath HHS and OIG. In other words, they are not expanding their opinion out to the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice has not spoke regarding these issues. So this is just the OIG speaking. For reducing or waiving any cost-sharing obligations under federal health care program beneficiaries uh, that they may owe for telehealth services furnished consistent with the applicable coverage and payment rules. In other words, all the rules apply, but for the very limited waivers and subject to these conditions, number one and two. One, reduce or waiver of coinsurance or deductible for telehealth services subject to all other rules. In other words, you're following all the other rules and telehealth services furnished during the COVID-19 declaration. Obviously, we have a start date for the federal. We don't have an end date yet. So please make sure that if you get all these services up and running, you are cautious on, on, on when these services end and they go back to all the former regulations. Some policy statement considerations. A, it's not required to waive or reduce, all right? If patients are able, you still should be collecting. Free telehealth is not an inducement during this period, all right? C, all CMS rules remain in place. Everything else remains in place. D, must bill for all services. Obviously, even if you're giving the care away, you still have to bill for it, all right? This has been a very long-term standing requirement of CMS to bill for all services performed. And E, all other laws still apply. The full breadth of the, the 
regime of healthcare laws that apply the provision of services to a federal be uh, beneficiary. All right, they did provide some tools and I'm gonna go real broad, real fast. Um, and this is just pointing some people in the right direction. Uh, 323, all right, we had an update to facility inspection uh, policies. 323, we also got a new targeted plan for healthcare facilities, 322. All right, we have delayed reporting for uh, quality reporting programs, 322. We got checklists and tools for state Medicaid and CHIP programs, 318. We got an FAQ for catastrophic health coverage. Make sure you look, look at that carefully. I know we're focusing on telehealth, but understand your catastrophic health coverage. 318, we also got guidance on elective surgeries. 317, we got guidance on all-inclusive care for elderly, the PACE program. Here's the newsroom. Make sure you keep up with that newsroom. If you've never signed up for CMS alerts, do it. I want to give a final note, all right, as, as we have just had an, an ever-changing sea of regulation and positions during this crisis. CMS has gotten very quiet for five days. And I got to tell you, as someone who lives and breathes these processes for a lot of years and their regulation of it, I have really big questions on how the implementation of these changes is going to be handled. It is, you know, tectonic. I mean, I'm not sure how adjudication systems and edits get in place, but obviously we're all going to be pitching in. We're all going to be taking a little more risk to provide care to patients that need it and are not able to get the care that they need otherwise. So I'm going to do a comparison of two states for uh, Medicaid just to highlight some of the examples. And, and obviously, I've got listeners all over the country. This is one demonstration. I will have some broader resources for you here in a few minutes. So South Carolina, DHHS on 317, they put out their own temporary policy changes. Um, they, they, the telehealth specific services, there was a policy change released two days later on 319. But on this date, there was COVID-19 testing for date of service 2-4. Notice a different start date than federal. It was covered under HCPCS U001 and 2 without prior authorization or copayment. Yes, the test and the E&M. Pharmacies may bypass early refills. Ambulatory and annual limit of 12 care visits is suspended. Infusion centers, uh, waiver of direct supervision. And this is a big deal for infusion centers. I have a lot of, lot of different infusion center clients and being able to still administer those services to critically ill patients is vital at this time. A little more about this policy change. Two days later, a temporary telehealth policy for South Carolina Medicaid came out. They will have subsequent, like many other payers, modifications for habilitative, rehabilitative, and behavioral therapies. Those will be coming out soon. Um, and notice that there are incremental changes. <clears throat> so for uh, data service 31520, moving forward, note that's different than CMS. Accepting, and I apologize, I'm going to cough real quick. I know we're live, but give me one second. Sorry, everybody. All right. <clears throat> Still working on this live. All right, here we go. Third bullet down. The current South Carolina DHHS telemedicine policies apply, except at least one remote component applies. This is a very broad definition, but one remote component will be sufficient, excluding email, instant, or text messaging. The Medicaid policy for South Carolina is not working by the public-facing definition that we've been given federally. So you've got to drill down and figure out what is your medium and how does it comply. Current telemedicine codes, uh, the same as normal. All right, we've got the G2010. 
and two. Uh, but then we've got the 99441 through three for the telephonic E&M. This policy specifically addressed medical doctors, doctors of osteopath, nurse practitioners, and PAs. And it contains the same limitations as far as origination. All right, must originate with the established patient. It cannot originate also from a related E&M in the prior seven days, nor lead to an E&M within the next 24 hours. South Carolina has a maximum of three of these services per 30 days. Let's look at a couple more components for South Carolina before we compare it with North Carolina. They also expanded this telehealth policy, temporary telehealth policy, to licensed independent practitioners. Important to note, although these practitioners typically use a lot of supervised personnel, these do not apply to the supervised personnel. There's no delegation. Even though this policy has been expanded, it's not delegable. All right, it cannot originate from related E&M within the seven days or procedure within 24 after, the same three encounters per 30 days. Although there's no location restriction, there's your CPTs and quote, important to remind ourselves, medical necessity requirements related to the provision of crisis management continue to apply. So for all of my LIPs out there, we're going to have a little more background and understanding of what that is, but go back to your manual, right? Your, your, your Medicaid manual on coverage positions. All existing South Carolina telemedicine regulations for MDs, DOs, NPs, and PAs continue to apply. Let's look at some of the differences, right? One state to another. 323, North Carolina policy changes. Uh, they provided payment parity, you know, in-office versus telehealth. But, quote, important, any HIPAA-compliant secure technology with audio and video, they didn't even have a public-facing analysis. It's irrelevant in North Carolina. So you've got to use a previously HIPAA-compliant certified technology to provide telehealth. Although they did expand providers, uh, there's, there's a list there, but also I want you to check on the North Carolina Medicaid manual for your normal covered providers. See if you're in there, see if you're eligible if you're not providing it already. We have an expanded list of eligible originating sites. Note, in North Carolina, Medicaid is not accepting all originating sites. There's specific eligible sites for Medicaid beneficiaries in North Carolina. They are eliminating the need for prior authorization and referrals. And just as a reminder, note that it doesn't mirror CMS or South Carolina Medicaid. I'm gonna point in some broad directions for some private payers. I'm gonna give two states, all right? And, and the states have really done a tremendous amount of work very quickly, the departments of insurance, all over the country to provide resource links uh, for each of the private payer changes on COVID-19 emergency telehealth services, go to them. But I'm using two states, again, South Carolina, North Carolina, to point out some of the major payer changes and how some of the smaller payers apply. So South Carolina, absolute total care, not a huge payer nationally, but important to understand the trend. Cost sharing is waived for medical necessity services for COVID-19. Can't be any service, just COVID-19. Existing telemedicine services with local healthcare systems remain the same. So in other words, all their standard systems remain the same, and they're only covering telemedicine for in-network providers that are contracted with Teladoc or another HIPAA-compliant platform very restrictive, right? Smaller payer, very hard for them to shift gears and make some of these dramatic changes. They're sticking with their bread and butter on telehealth. We're gonna compare this to Aetna, all right? Aetna copays are waived only for COVID-19 testing. Cost sharing for telemedicine is waived for 90 days. 90 days, just start your clock, 
All right. And there's also 90 day maintenance medication prescriptions for insureds and Medicare patients. Uh, they can get early refill limits waived for 30 day prescriptions through C CVS Caremark. And I'm going to obviously with telehealth, getting prescriptions and what can be prescribed are some of the major issues. So I'm going to keep pulling in some of the pharmacy pieces as we move through this. A couple other examples from South Carolina DOI. So we have Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, and then we have Bright Health. I'm going to compare these two. So Blue Cross of South Carolina and Blue Choice. Most of the blues across the country coordinated very, very well and all have mirror policies. Not, not all, but most. Cost sharing for COVID-19 testing uh, and for full viral panel is waived. If it's testing or full viral panel for COVID, it's waived. Time limit for pre-authorization for inpatient stays for COVID-19 is waived. Mail order for 90-day prescriptions. Preferred medication waiver. They'll take both, but they prefer the waiver. All cost sharing waived for virtual doctor visits if you are using their tool, the Blue Care On Demand. Let's compare this to Bright Health, another smaller payer. So COVID-19 testing and full viral panel at no cost to patient, waiver of cost sharing for related services. Again, that's a broad definition. Um, they give an example, in-network telehealth, office visits or, e or ER, but related is difficult. Prescription refills on an as-needed basis, early fill edits are overridden, telehealth is, has the normal cost-sharing services for unrelated. And for all of my compliance professionals and revenue cycle managers, don't build your checklist of elements of covered reimbursement that's changed yet. We're going to go over some tools to work on that towards the end here. All right, another example from SCDOI, Cigna. Cigna's cost sharing waived for COVID-19 and related services in network. They're requiring all in network, including telehealth. Prescriptions, free home delivery of up to 90 day supply through Express Scripts. Cigna self-screening tool, They've got an online tool for doing some, you know, patient-initiated screening. In patients with immunosuppression, chronic conditions, or with transportation challenges, there are exp expanded virtual services by in-network providers for those. Uh, Cigna is also providing a 24-hours-a-day hotline uh, to qualified clinicians. They are just opening up a hotline. They have providers standing by to help assist. Now, let's compare some of the information from the North Carolina DOI. So Blue Cross of North Carolina, same as the rest of the Blues, and their focus is targeted on online screening also. First Care Carolina, in-network providers must see First Health on the go. In other words, it's a requirement in network to use their tool. For COVID-19 only, pre-certification, no cost sharing, the normal 30-day prescriptions. Notice, dynamic difference between payers. The normal 30-day prescriptions and normal cost sharing for medications apply. And that is effective until 4-17. Our time periods are very different per payer. Obviously, these, we have to stay current on these policy changes. They may change per payer. UHC, last private payer example, uh, before we go out to the broad resources and talk about the tools we can walk away with. UHC, so UHC is decided for COVID-19 only, cost sharing waived on tests and related visits, in-network providers, uh, you have 24-7 virtual visits for any reason. So, you know, any reason that it's needed and we're uh, in-network providers can provide those services, but normal cost sharing and coverage apply. All right, UHC's not waiving unless it is for COVID-19. Medicare Advantage, existing partners without cost 
sharing through 6.18.20. Note, there, these are uh, relaxed restrictions of CMS are not applying here. Even though this is an Advantage plan, it's, they're not required to apply the CMS version of the emergency telehealth. Normal pharmacy benefits and restrictions apply through Optum. CDC, all right, our, our guide on, on diagnostic. It is important to note for everyone across all payers that we have a new ICD code for COVID-19 that is U07, period one. Effectiveness has been backed up from 10-1 to 4-1 of this year. So as of 4-1, make sure you have the correct ICD in your claims. And there's a lot of other good information on these pages if you have not visited them lately. Let's talk about some of the broad resources that are available out there for learning how to implement telehealth. The American Medical Association has a guide to telehealth. Um, it has a nice general uh, background information of how to prepare a team to set up and implement telemedicine, policy coding and payment implementation. Uh, information, general guidance, and practice implementation guidance. They also have a very uh, thorough resource library. Lots of the states have um, individual ones. I'll give you South Carolina as an example. So South Carolina Telehealth Alliance, current partners, and how to join. There's a lot of vendor resources with these groups service guides for hospitals, outpatient clinics, school-based, mobile access, education and training. There's a historical guidance on telehealth services and current news feed on COVID-19 changes. Resource, and now the one thing I want to, important to pause and note. So we went from AMA to, to a state resource. Your state resource is going to have a little more information and closer bead on how these telehealth changes are being implemented locally in your state. AMA is a nice broad policy, but many of your state or regional associations will go down to a more granular level to give you guidance. So for a lot of my Mid-Atlantic, and I, and I know from First Healthcare Compliance audience that there's a large percentage in our Mid-Atlantic region, uh, the uh, Mid-Atlantic Telehealth Resource Center covers PA, New Jersey, Delaware, Maryland, DC, West Virginia, Virginia, Kentucky, and North Carolina. There's a lot of great service partners and they are very state specific. There's topical and educational resources on here. COVID-19 telehealth resources, they are already building quite a tool, tool chest, all right? They talk about different Specialties, you know, mental and behavioral health, remote monitoring, technology and HIPAA service protocols. There are some resources for billing and reimbursement. There's technical support, training and implementation education. Telehealth federal and licensure policy changes. There's uh, links of networks there. And also they can point you to the National Telehealth Policy Resource. We'll talk about that below. But they, this does have some pretty nice guides uh, for state-specific with Medicaid, licensure, and we're going to talk about a little bit on licensure changes uh, because they have been very dynamic and fluid within each of the states also and some of the policy changes. The Center for Connected Health Policy, CCHP, all right, has put together uh, for a good amount of time now, the National Telehealth Policy Resource Center. This is a library. It is a big, thorough library of existing state and ter territory telehealth law and policies. If you have not done a lot of homework and, and have been up and running in telehealth for a while, this is a great resource. Uh, it's not going to be very specific per state or region or payer. Um, but it is a nice resource to, to go to on some of your fine-tooth questions. COVID-19 summaries and links to other payers' uh, information can be found there. 
this is where I want to slow down. I know I talk pretty fast and, and we're all trying to gather as much information as I can, but this is the keys to implementation. And in the six minutes I've got left, I want to slow down and focus on these. First, stay current with state government orders. All right. I mean, we, we have got legal questions of whether municipalities can order stay at homes versus states. Who's got authority to do what? All right. Stay current on what's going on. How do you get your staff and providers to work? All of those are big questions. Are you inside an essential business? Or are you not an essential business? Understand how you're operating logistically right now. Emergency state licensure waivers. This is really amazing. Um, as, as much reimbursement change as we have had in telehealth, there has been a great amount of licensure change as far as limited waivers in response to the COVID-19 crisis. Many states have waived restrictions on providers practicing telehealth across state borders and emergency practice within the states including prescribing waivers. Uh, I, I'll tell you, I've never seen anything like it. There, there was, you know, the Board of South Carolina just lifted up and put out an order uh, allowing prescribing of, of controlled substances under limited circumstances via telehealth. You know, something that seems really hard to do uh, historically with telehealth is all of a sudden permissible, but be very careful, all right? For all of my pain management, Providers out there, you better check with your malpractice carrier and know what you're doing before you start prescribing over telehealth um, for controlled substances. Practice specific directions from the board. Every, I mean, depending on your area of, of practice, we have got varying degrees of how to respond to social distancing or how, what, is, what is elective uh, procedure versus necessary. So, Make sure you are reviewing, you know, if you're a dentist, a pharmacist, a podiatrist, a nurse, et cetera, they're all unique in each state by each profession. Um, so they've got independent limitations. Some of them have greatly expanded. Uh, make sure you take the time and understand that, again, that even though the payer regulations might have expanded, your board, all right, scope may not have permitted those expanded providers to perform those services yet. So that's a part of the analysis that you have to go through to determine implementation and expansion of telehealth services during this emergency period. All right, for all my reimbursement people, my compliance officers, uh, the payer matrix, and, and we know what this is. You know, historically, we used to call this the insurance Bible, but, you know, in the, in the digital age, we build these on spreadsheets. But build an emergency telehealth coverage spreadsheet, right? Um, you know, work it into your global plan, and then if you can get it in, if you are operating your own adjudication and claims processing system, you know, obviously you have a much more capability to do this, um, but if we're talking about a practice, get all your information in one place, all right? Chart your distinctions by payer, by service, by provider. Make sure you highlight your specific limitations and requirements. Telehealth practice protocol, all right? No matter what form of practice or facility, the rules for telehealth have changed for almost everyone, all right, from the hospital to, to, you know, every different type of provider out there almost, these rules have shifted. So you need to draft a new written protocol for providers and staff to implement per payer. Because we just went through all the ways that they're each unique right now. Make sure that you are down to the per payer regulations. Telehealth equipment, all right, even under our relaxed HIPAA enforcement, it is important to ensure that your telehealth equipment meets all your minimum standards for all your payers. Obviously, that's a sliding scale, right? If, if you are in a, a niche practice that is you know, all Medicare and Medicaid, you have broader capability than if you're serving the predominant you know, public that has private insurance and, and they're still running you through their existing systems. 
a few more key uh, implementations here, malpractice carriers. Um, I got to tell you, I have never seen malpractice carriers doing more to try and help educate and inform all right, their insureds before in my life. It, it has just been amazing how people, whatever component they are of the healthcare system, have been coming together. Many malpractice carriers have requirements in excess of payer mandates. I'll give you one example. Right now, there's a raging debate over uh, a written consent where oral consent has been authorized by a payer and because and, they have a best practice, you know, particularly in, you know, the pain management arena that all of a sudden, you know, telehealth is, is an option for controlled substances. Make sure you know what your malpractice carrier is comfortable with before you provide those services. Make sure your uh, carrier allows and covers your unique temporary changes, all right? Um, and I talked about prescribing controlled substances, but if, if you're in a small area practice and a mental health provider and, uh, and you have not normally provided telehealth, you know, that is a dynamic shift in scope of what your carrier is insuring. So make sure you're, you're talking with them and getting approval for the performance of your services so that you are covered. It's also important to understand that we have very different limitations for assistance with telehealth than you do in the normal office or hospital setting. All right, it is imperative that you understand the payer policies that assistants who normally perform tasks, you know, that, that are mundane, even like informing a patient and taking consents, many of the telehealth require the provider to get the consent. All right, and not an assistant. All right, so we have got about three minutes left, and I'm going to run through these. Telehealth expansion is focused on COVID. All right, understand the differences. Private payers, obviously much more limited, and most of them using their tools. Make sure you prepare a complete and thorough plan for telehealth, all right, when you, for implementation or expansion. It is most important that you understand the relaxation of some of the regulations does not mean telehealth is a free-for-all. Plan carefully per payer. Thank you, everybody, for attending. Um, I hope you found this a valuable resource. I hope people are staying well out there. And I'm in this fight with you uh, for all of, all of us trying to figure out what the new normal looks like and how we're going to get back to it. I hope you've enjoyed the presentation today. Be safe.